Hey everybody, this is week two of the new debut of our video episodes that are going up on YouTube of the A-Sides. So what you're about to hear is the audio version of the YouTube video that went up concurrently. I think that means at the same time, right? Anyway, it went up at the same time as the release of this here podcast. So if you prefer to watch the video version of my interview with Steve Marr discussing the critical distinction between democratic socialism and progressivism, head over to YouTube. The link is in the show description of this podcast episode. You can find that in iTunes or your podcast catcher in the link description. Uh, Some people seem to have trouble. They don't know that there is such a description that accompanies each episode. Well, dear listener, there is. So if you dig hard enough, you'll find it there. So go ahead and click on that and watch the video. Or if, uh, if you'd like to continue on, feel free to enjoy this audio version of that YouTube episode. As always, patrons of the Dead Pundit Society will be getting a B-side that will be audio only. That's the official Dead Pundit Society podcast now. So if you don't want to miss out on the official DPS, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe today. Patrons should look out in their custom RSS feeds and their podcast catcher apps for that B-side that's going to be dropping later today. Until then, enjoy the episode. The battle between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren is heating up as Warren released her tax plan for Medicare for All last week. In this episode of Dead Pundit Society, we're going to tell you about the most fundamental distinction between Warren and Sanders that almost nobody's talking about. The internet is awash in articles and essays and videos trying to detail the distinctions between Warren and Sanders. Some even go so far as saying that there are no distinctions, that these are, quote, distinctions without difference. Some defenders of Sanders rightly point to his decades and decades of leadership and experience on the Democratic Socialist left, going back to his arrest that he faced in Chicago, standing up for civil rights. And this, after all, is an important point. I mean, authenticity is important. People want to know that the promises that you're laying out in the campaign will be fulfilled once you're in office. On the other hand, some detractors of Warren point to her comments about being a capitalist to her bones as evidence that this progressive veneer she's put on recently isn't that authentic at all. Much in the same vein, others point to the way that Liz Warren practically pulled a hamstring, leaping to her feet to applaud Donald Trump's negative comments about creeping socialism. America will never be a socialist country. The flame wars between progressives and democratic socialists online has been heating up exponentially over the past couple of months, especially as Liz Warren has been surging in the polls and Bernie Sanders in turn has seen his own surge following his health scare in large part thanks to the endorsements of AOC, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. So bombs are being lobbed back and forth between the progressives of Vox and elsewhere and the democratic socialists oftentimes found in the pages of Jacobin Magazine or Common Dreams. And these are important arguments. Uh, I myself have waged them in the past, so I don't mean to denounce them. 
However, I think that most of these arguments have failed to get to the real heart of the distinction between Warren and Sanders. And in this, we are missing a really critical opportunity to hash this out amongst ourselves. That is the distinctions between progressivism on the one hand and democratic socialism on the other hand. And in the process of having that debate, we're going to force each side to define their terms, to define the way that they look at the world, their strategies, their analyses, and so on. And we're not doing that. And it's a big problem because no matter who wins, whether it's Warren, whether it's Sanders, whether it's Biden, whether it's Andrew Yang, all right, these issues, this distinction between progressivism on the one hand and democratic socialism on the other hand is going to be with us for a very long time. So what my guests and I hope to do this week is to outline the ways in which American progressivism fails, even if it achieves what it sets out to achieve. I know this sounds a little bit contradictory. How is the case, Adam, that progressivism could fail even though it succeeds? Well, we're going to lay all of that out for you and much more in today's interview. Joining us to break down these key issues and the distinctions between democratic socialism and progressivism, we're going to unfuck the discourse today, folks, is Steve Marr. He is the assistant editor of the Socialist Register, and he teaches courses at the University of Ontario's Institute of Technology. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So a little over a year ago, you wrote a really crucial crucial essay, if I might say so. Uh, I was really excited about it when it came out. You and I discussed it at length. It's been over a year ago now. It's called Accountable Capitalism or Democratic Socialism? Question mark. Came out in Jacobin Magazine online. Uh, at that time, Elizabeth Warren was really dipping her feet in a serious way into the pool, uh, about to announce her, her candidacy for the Democratic Party primary in 2020. And she put out her Accountable Capitalism Act to try to cement her status as the serious progressive with a plan for everything. Uh, what is your assessment of Warren today? And do you, do you share uh, many of the same critiques that you wrote about in that essay? Tell our audience as we get started here, uh, what are some of the key outlines that you identified in Warren's approach to capitalism and progressive and radical politics uh, over a year ago now? Well, there's a lot there in your question. Um, and even though mm -hmm. the essay came out more than a year ago, as you say, there is a, um, there's a current essay in the current issue of the Socialist Register that just, that just came out that I co-wrote with um, Leo Panich and Sam Gindin, which updates the analysis in that essay and um, com draws a more explicit comparison with Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn's uh, proposals. Uh, to be honest, you know, Elizabeth Warren's plan is progressive. It's it would be, you know, it's, it bills itself as um, a major shift in the balance of power between capital and labor in the United States. Um, and in some respects, it would represent a meaningful step toward economic democracy to have workers be able to appoint, elect um, uh, members of the corporate boards of directors, which is the main substance of the plan, along with some limits on uh, campaign finance and some limits on executing stock buybacks, which we can talk about if you want, which are which she blames for financialization. But uh, the real issue is that the plan is modeled on the German co-determination system, which has not been able to prevent 
the imposition of a really harsh neoliberal regime in Germany, among the harshest in the world. Um, and as a matter of fact, despite the fact that it democratizes individual workplaces to some extent by allowing workers to appoint um, workers onto this, uh, representatives to the seats of boards of directors, um, it does not democratize the economy as a whole. So there's an important difference to be drawn, a distinction to be drawn between democratizing one particular firm or one particular workplace and democratizing the economy. And if you strictly limit your plan to the former, which I think Sanders to a significant extent also does, then the result can be counterproductive in the sense that you actually give workers a greater incentive to buy into, quote unquote, their corporation rather than develop more democratic control over the economy as a whole. Um, so in order to take the second route, it would require actually breaking down the barriers, changing the fundamental relationship between firms, between companies, and therefore between the workers who work in them uh, in order to overcome the market competitive competitiveness as the fundamental standard whereby the division of labor um, is decided. So we need to make decisions democratically about what we produce, how much we produce, who produces it, where it's produced, etc., uh, that are not just determined by market forces. And that requires that we come up with planning mechanisms that socialize the economy, that break down the competitive logic between individual corporations and allow us to collectively, as a social, as a whole society, make these kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. So it can be helpful, though, it should be noted, it can be helpful to have you know, workers make decisions over who their bosses are. It can make people probably happier. It may make them better workers. It may improve efficiency in the economy. It may reduce absenteeism. All these are claims that Sanders has made, and they're probably correct. But it's not necessarily going to constitute a step toward overcoming capitalism, and it, it, it can have a really negative effect on the ability to build working class solidarity across the class as a whole. So we're already way deep into the weeds. I like to start into the thick of things and then sort of pull back a little bit and cover some of the bases and, and, and get to some of these fundamental questions that, that I started the show with. So let's let's circle back to that towards the end of our chat today. And let's kind of let's ask a more basic question. Uh, what is Elizabeth Warren's theory of social change? How does she sort of um, assess and analyze and explain and account for power in our capitalist society? Uh, she wants to rein in capital. She wants to sort of um, uh, uh, bring some accountability to those greedy managers of capital and finance. Uh, but she seems to think that we can do that within the context of capitalism itself and, and its market sort of market logics of, of competition. You've already indicated that that is uh that's, that's a faulty assumption. That's a faulty aim that even if progressivism gets what it wants, which would be a lofty thing in itself, uh, it would still not be successful. So let's start there. What is Warren's theory of social change and why does it fall flat? Warren doesn't have any horizons politically beyond simply trying to get the Congress to pass legislation. So um, change at the political level occurs by making deals in Congress, getting the legislation passed and implementing it. Um, she does also support you know, increasing unionization. And so she does see, I think, the, the, the need to increase workers' bargaining power at the workplace, which is an element of a kind of uh, extra parliamentary dimension of, of a kind of political strategy. But this isn't part of a coherent 
approach to, to, to overcoming capitalism or building the capacity of the work, working class as a class to take on capitalists as a class. It is about the capacity to maybe shift just distributional bargains within the societies that workers have more purchasing power and inequality can be reduced. So I think that is her basic approach to social change. And in terms of her plan for, for uh, accountable capitalism and, and the progressive model that she has put forward, the basic, the basic thrust of it appears to me to be about empowering the managers of non-financial corporations, industrial firms, to limit the pressure of financiers on them. So to limit the, the, the fi- pressure of the financial sector, of investors, on non-financial corporate managers. And the way that this is going to be done in her model is by building alliances between workers and non-financial corporate managers to reduce financial pressure. Um, And this is rooted in a whole model of capitalism and and neoliberalism, really specifically, that not just Warren, but Clinton and and many other uh, left-leaning Democrats to the left of Clinton uphold, which, which is basically that the main problem that led to the end of the golden age of capitalism, the, the couple decade boom after World War II, is financialization. And what financialization basically amounts to in this model is bankers or financiers, investors, pressuring corporate managers to engage in short-term strategies that are basically destroying the economy and enriching themselves at the expense of good jobs and uh, national prosperity. So it's not an accident that Warren relies very, very heavily on quite brazen nationalist rhetoric to the extent that Tucker Carlson, a far-right commentator on Fox News, actually celebrated Warren's plan, uh, calling it, saying that it sounded like Trump at his best. She sounds like Donald Trump at his best. So who is this Elizabeth Warren, you ask? Um, And if you read some of the nationalist rhetoric Hmm. that she's used, it really is Trump-like. Um, the main problem being that these financiers are not patriotic. They have no loyalty to America. They are globalists in their orientation. And they have no interest in sustaining over the long term American industrial corporations. And they have basically hollowed them out and trashed them. Um, so the, the solution to this problem from Warren's perspective is to build up an alliance between workers and industrial firm managers to limit the pressure that financiers uh, can exert on these corporate managers. Mm-hmm. Now, can't one point out the hypocrisy of these flag waving, uh, you know, allegedly patriotic CEOs and corporate managers, but without also entailing the kind of pro capitalist market logics, this kind of cross class alliance that Warren thinks in her wildest fantasies uh, would ever come true? Couldn't couldn't both be? Couldn't we couldn't we pursue both without uh, entailing the other? I mean, I think I think the fundamental problem is, that has to be addressed is is not are corporations loyal to America or not, whatever that would mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the the fundamental problem that has to be addressed is what kind of of a society we want to have. Right. Even if you're able to keep capital investing in the United States in manufacturing capacity or whatever she envisions, um, high tech jobs. Uh, you're still the, the question still remains of how those industries are organized. Uh, are they organized according to some kind of capitalist logic based on profits and market competition? Or are they organized according to some other model? Um, and I think the, the way that Warren's nationalist rhetoric tends to work is to skirt that issue entirely. 
and to say all we really need are managers to be more patriotic and we can have, you know, the, the 1940s to the 1960s all over again. Um, of course, leaving aside the fact that that wasn't all that good for a lot of people in the first place. This is really interesting. I, let's talk a little bit about how it is the case that even if Warren got what she wanted, and we've already uh, given a considerable amount of doubt to that, given that her theory of social change is somewhat limited to a kind of proceduralist electoralism uh, and certainly uh, incapable of garnering the sort of mass movement potential of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, But let's just say that she could get what she wanted. Uh, It seems to rely heavily on this sort of cross-class alliance that you're spelling out here. Talk to us a little bit about why that's not only improbable, but quite likely impossible given the demands of global capitalist accumulation. Well, I mean, one of the one of the elements of Warren's plan that is missing that would probably have to be there in order for her to have any shot at achieving what she wants is capital controls. Mm-hmm. Um, and she basically envisions enticing corporations to invest at home by giving them huge subsidies for research and development. Uh, and other government contracts that require that the corporations invest some amount of their new investment at home in manufacturing capacities. Um, so that would be necessary to promote the kind of class alliance, cross-class alliance that she that she envisions. But I also want to step back from it. I don't think it's impossible that Warren's proposals could mobilize the left. I don't think she herself is going to do that. That she's made that pretty clear. But I think if she was going to be elected, if she was to be elected, it would be up to the left to mobilize. Uh, in order to in, to achieve some amount of progressive change, whatever would be possible under the circumstances. And indeed, Warren's, some of her proposals may be worth fighting for. Um, and indeed, if you look at the plans themselves, in many respects, they don't differ that much from what Sanders is putting forward um, in terms of the actual policies. The main difference is in, are they really trying to build a mass working class movement to to achieve a deeper and broader social transformation? So it's, it's hard to imagine uh, a class alliance emerging within the context of contemporary global capitalism because given financial integration, global financial integration, capitalists don't have to engage in these kinds of bargains. They can simply invest elsewhere for the most part. Um, Warren's green manufacturing plan is, 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 is aims to correct that by basically forcing capitalists, if they want to get access to these subsidies, to invest in the United States. And so the, the idea that she has there is that, you know, this would promote the kind of alliance that she envisions without having to resort to capital controls. Um, you can basically entice corporations to invest at home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This might seem like a bit of a tangent, but uh, maybe compare and contrast Warren's plans of sort of incentivizing certain market behaviors with the more universalist sort of um, – uh, properly democratic socialist approach uh, to, to say that of Jeremy Corbyn's Labor Party in the United Kingdom. I mean, they're kicking off an election campaign in earnest here. It's uh, just a little under six weeks away uh, from the election day there in the United Kingdom. Uh, the stakes are couldn't be higher. The winners of that election are going to be shaping policy into the into the fairly uh, you know far flung future. Here we're talking a six year government, perhaps, and many are saying that we only have ten to fifteen years to really get this catastrophic climate change uh, on course if we're going to you know prevent some of the worst uh, outcomes. Uh, the stakes are high. What let's contrast Jeremy Corbyn's uh, universalist policies with with Liz Warren's. Maybe that's a nice way to sort of talk about the differences between uh, progressivism and democratic socialism. 
So the big, the big difference, to put it in the broadest possible terms to start with, between Warren and Sanders and Corbyn, Warren on the one side and Sanders and Corbyn on the other side, is that Warren's policies from her green manufacturing plan, which is, you know, multi-trillion dollar plan to fight climate change by developing green technologies and manufacturing in the United States, um, is that Warren's plan is aimed at rejuvenating industrial corporations in the United States. That is the purpose of it. Corbyn and McDonald and Sanders, on the other hand, McDonald being the shadow chancellor in the UK um, uh, with Jeremy Corbyn, on the other hand, are trying to articulate policies that and strategies that weaken the power of corporations over time, that weaken the dominance of capitalist corporations over the lives of working class people over time. Warren wants to strengthen industrial corporations and she wants to increase workers' buy-in as stakeholders in industrial firms. Mm -hmm. Sanders and Corbyn and McDonald are trying to craft strategies, however limited in certain respects, to weaken the power, the dominance of industrial corporations over the lives of working people over the long term. And in the case of the, of the Green New Deal, uh, as, as it's called in the UK, the Green Industrial Revolution, the difference with Warren is particularly striking and goes beyond what Sanders has also proposed in the US. I mean, John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, has proposed delisting from the London Stock Exchange companies that, that do not adhere to democratically decided upon by, through the elected government of the UK, which would be a labor government, standards for environmental uh, protection, environmental harm uh, to be well, caused well. by that. Yeah. So it, seem, it seems to me that, that, you know, that whereas Warren wants to motivate uh, market behavior with the carrot, uh, she's unwilling to bring the stick. And you just, you just, you know, laid out quite, quite uh, powerfully how it is that John McDonald and Jeremy Corbyn are, are bringing the stick to, to, to punish and force the behaviors of these completely reckless and irresponsible corporate managers. Yeah, I mean, they are, they are in some ways bringing the stick, but also it has to be noted that, that their uh, own capacities to do so are also limited. I mean, John McDonald, um, far more radical than, than Elizabeth Warren, obviously, has also shied away from saying he would use capital controls if the, UK, if, if the Labor Party were elected to govern the UK. And that's not because John McDonald is uh, not bold or not brave. It's because they don't have the capacity to implement them without causing a worse uh, downturn in the in the in the uh, English economy in the British economy than it's supposedly trying to solve by electing the Labour Party. Um, so they have they, there has to be a longer term strategy here, which is only vaguely um, coming into place or coming into view thus far. But what's important is is that the, in the UK, Corbyn and McDonnell have laid out in a much more substantial way than either Warren or Sanders a plan to democratize the financial apparatus of the state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what that means is to basically, rather than just use financial regulation and the central bank in this case, the Bank of England, to, to reduce volatility in financial markets, they actually are going to try to use the capacity of the, of the central bank to enforce environmental standards decided upon democratically by an elected government. If you, if a company or an investor, a financial firm, does not meet standards set by the democratic government, then those companies can be delisted from the London Stock Exchange, which means 
this is the plan, right? Which, which would mean that they can't raise capital on one of the largest uh, stock markets in the world. They could also they could always go elsewhere, right? And this is again where capital controls come in, become important. They, these companies could go to to New York and raise capital, right, or or whatever. Um, but the important point is that you know establishing a permanent office in the Bank of England, whose purpose would be to oversee this kind of a policy, is the first step toward really taking meaningful steps toward democratizing the economic apparatus of the state which would require a massive, massive struggle in order to achieve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, not just and class no struggle from below, but also sort of finding and discovering the, the appointed actors, the social actors and the social forces in advance of the policy. And so I think we're really getting to the core, the roots of some of the distinctions between Warren and Sanders. And, and most importantly, for our purposes today on this episode, uh, the distinctions between American progressivism and what's commonly referred to as democratic socialism, which is to say that whereas Warren produces her policies uh, without having uh, the, the, the chess pieces on the board already, Bernie Sanders' strategy, and certainly Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell in the UK Labor Party, their strategy seems to, to, to be predicated on uh, discovering and building the capacities and identifying the social actors in advance of articulating the kind of uh, policies uh, that, that would then bring those social actors onto the playing field. Uh, so let's talk to, talk to us a little bit more about this word capacities. I think it's such a crucial word. Uh, what does it mean to, to ha- have an awareness of political and economic uh, capacities in terms of thinking through social objectives and, and policy-oriented aims? Well, I mean, there's different kinds of capacities. I think, you know, for, for in the case of Corbyn and McDonald and Sanders, they identify the capacities, the necessary capacities as being rooted in the development of a class-wide working class movement for broad social change. And those those are, I think, clearly being prioritized on both sides of the Atlantic by these democratic socialist movements as being the key to doing anything more. And for now, they're focusing a lot on, in order to build that working class base for any kind of left uh, government that might be elected, they're focusing a lot on increasing universal social programs, democrat, you know, for social provision, you know, what you might call welfare state programs, social democratic programs. But the idea is to make these not just social democratic programs, but rather a stepping stone for, for something more. And whether or not that's going to be possible is, remains to be seen. But what is clear is that certainly neither Sanders nor Corbyn and McDonald can put on the agenda, for, for example, seizing the means of production. Not only are they not saying that, but if they did, it wouldn't necessarily be helpful at this time. I doubt that they would receive much support and they would probably not win an election. I don't think that would play in Iowa, if you know what I'm saying. No, exactly. And, and I don't think, I think uh, it, it's concrete meaning. It would just be a, a slogan. What would it mean? Yeah. How, how would that be implemented? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's not, they, there's no re- path that one can imagine whereby that could occur at this particular time, given the balance of forces and, and so on. But the other kind of capacities, which this brings us to, are state capacities. And on the basis of a working class movement, the idea is to shift the capacities of the state to completely different ends than those to which it is currently being put. So currently the state, after decades of neoliberalism in both the U.S. and the U.K., has found its planning capacities uh, even to manage capitalism uh, in, in the kind of traditional Keynesian way diminished, uh, not only in terms of public infrastructure, but other areas as well. 
On the other hand, the key seat of power for the dominant sectors of the capitalist classes in both the U.S. and the U.K. is the economic apparatus, namely the central bank and the treasury. So the central bank and the treasury are the key seat of state capacities and the key seat of the power for the financial sector. Now, needless to say, this structure, these state institutions, are not set up to do anything like what Sanders or Corbyn and McDonnell are proposing. So that has to be completely transformed. You know, those, those existing apparatuses have to be repurposed to radically different ends, uh, or new capacities have to be built within the state, and that requires a plan. Um, and Corbett and McDonald, I think, with their, with their uh, plans that I was just mentioning around the environment, are just beginning to sketch out how that could work. But that's going to require a real significant fight, as, as some of us say on the left, coming from the Eurocommunist tradition, or Nikos Polansis and others, a fight on the terrain of the state to transform its institutions so that they do different things other than just manage capitalism uh, effectively to reduce volatility and so on, as they, as they currently are set up to do. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm absolutely in favor of transforming our institutions, and I think some of the best and brightest minds on the democratic socialist policy left have a, an intense eye towards doing that in terms of democratizing the state. On the Dead Pundit Society podcast, I've been talking about uh, you know this this idea of of public ownership and, and demo- democratizing all aspects of society. I've been discussing this for for in earnest for about six months. But but uh, the Warrenites, the progressives, would chime in and say, ah, 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 but but Warren has an intense eye to this as well. You know, look at her consumer protection uh, protection uh, board that she put put together. You know, in the in the early two thousands, she has an intense eye to getting in there, appointing the right people who can get the job done, who know how to manipulate the rules and change the game in a real intense way. So what 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 say you? To these progressives who share your uh, aim towards transforming institutions, and what is it then that makes the the democratic socialist path in that uh, way unique? I guess you could say. What makes us different? Yeah, I mean, Warren has actually espoused. That's a really good point that you make. I mean, she's actually espoused quite a detailed plan for transforming the state, um, but not in socialist, not in a socialist way at all. So she wants to replace the Department of Commerce and the U.S. Trade Representative. Uh, the U.S. Trade Representative is the body in the, in the U.S. state that negotiates trade agreements and has been increasingly empowered and increasingly autonomous throughout the post-war period, um, uh, making, basically making a huge range of social and economic policy via trade agreements. Um, she wants to subordinate the U.S. Trade Representative by folding it into a new Department of Economic Development that would also include the Department of Commerce. The Department of Commerce, since its creation in the early 20th century, has been the primary organ in the American state that directly organizes industrial corporations. Throughout most of its history, it's been associated with tariffs and protectionism, even through the neoliberal period, pushing for uh, a kind of neo-protectionist strategy of uh, corporate subsidization to offset competitive advantages from the Japanese and German states, for example, um, uh, fighting for subsidized credit, uh, export credits to the XM Bank, etc. So the Department of Commerce has been very closely linked in a non, not very autonomous way with American industrial corporations. Elizabeth Warren wants to basically bring the U.S. Trade Representative into a new department with the Department of Commerce that would have the function, as she sees it, of subordinating the internationalist, the internationally oriented trade representative to the more domestic orientation of the Department of Commerce as it kind of has existed. And this department would also be 
beefed up in terms of giving being given uh, the power to set to develop four year plans. I think maybe it's five year plans, but I think it's four year plans that would basically be industrial strategies for building up a high tech green technology base in the United States four years at a time, and being given a lot of funds to actually to actually carry out an industrial policy that would support this. Mm-hmm. Um, when socialists talk about transforming the state, they're not talking about building up the power of capitalists to uh, rejuvenate capitalism in a kind of manufacturing capacity. What socialists are talking about is increasing the power of workers, to, building state capacities to, to, to support the organization of the working class rather than to diminish the organization of the working class and to, and to provide directly new forms of radical bottom-up democracy to undertake social management, political management from the community level to the national level Um, and to meet objectives, to get the economy to meet objectives that are not just determined by private profits. So as the economy stands now, right, the the main determinant of of what we make, how we make it, who makes it, where it's made, etc., are private profits. You know, Uh, we invest in places that we get a return. So if American progressives get their way, if Warren's plans come to fruition, if what I've called the wonk industrial complex is successful uh, in these aims, why is it the case that uh, what they set out right, to uh, achieve a much more egalitarian society through these aims, why is it that that will necessarily fail? Because I think that's, that's what I really want to get through in the course of our discussion today, in the course of this episode. Why is it that even if the progressives get everything that they want, and there's, there's ample reason to believe why that wouldn't be the case for both obvious reasons and more nuanced reasons, but if they got everything they want with respect to what you just laid out in this institutional transformation, why wouldn't it produce a more egalitarian, more equal, uh, more democratic more, uh, you know, just all around happy society uh, for the the vast majority of working people in the United States and across the world? Well, in some respects, it would produce a more egalitarian society. I mean, it may reduce income inequality, for example. It may increase uh, people's access to good jobs. Um, Those things may may occur if you consider good jobs to be unionized jobs in, you know, non-precarious service sector kind of employment. Those things may happen. But what it, what it won't achieve is, is that what, what the more important point, I think, is to point out that its objectives itself are, 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 are what's limited of progressivism. It's not that they, they, if they get what they want, it's going to suck. It might be better than it is now uh, if they get what they want. And in fact, I think it would be uh, in some respects. The problem is that the objectives themselves are not socialism. The objectives themselves are industrial capitalism. The objectives themselves are fixing the balance of trade by selling the rest of the world green technologies necessary to overcome climate change, which is an existential threat that threatens everybody on the planet, not just the United States, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't think that, you know, the way Warren frames this is that, is that um, climate change is a huge business opportunity for the United States. And that with the right kinds of subsidies and re- reconfiguration of the state to support kind of new R&D projects like we did during World War II, we can actually make a, make a lot of money on this, fix our balance of trade, expand employment, all this stuff. And those things may be great uh, in some respects, although, you know, in other respects, those objectives aren't important at all. Um, but the problem is that they're not going to necessarily bring us to a point where we are talking about socialism, where we're talking about people having real democratic control over the economy um, and, and over their lives. 
And mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the major lessons of the past, you know, generation has been that these these policies or these strategies that are around trying to provide incentives for markets, they are very very limited in their ability to achieve social ends in a sustainable way. The problem being that as soon as capitalism runs into a crisis and can't support these programs anymore, Mm -hmm. they have to be rolled back and restructured. So unless your policies and your your political strategy aims at pushing beyond social democracy, unless you have a way of producing a shift that's beyond just social democratic programs, then you're just reproducing capitalism. And what that means is that the state will have to be restructured as, as often and as much as necessary in order to stabilize capitalism. And I think we have to have a really robust understanding of the decline of the post-war uh, golden age of capitalism in order to understand why it is that even if the progressives and Warren uh, gets what they want, even if it is successful at uh, staving off climate change, and there's ample reason to believe that the corporate the corporations cannot be trusted with that aim. Uh, there's ample reasons to believe that capitalism only uh, adheres to its needs for ever-increasing profits rather than the needs of, of society and real people. But even if they got what they wanted, uh, if you understand the decline of post-war capitalism, you'd have a lot of doubt as to how uh, stable that achievement would be and that it would be ultimately compromised and undermined in the way that we saw uh, you know, play out in the 1950s and 60s. You say maybe, exactly. maybe explain that that decline. Here, here's a hell of a question for you, Steve, to, to wrap up our our interview today. Explain to us the real outlines. Trace the outlines of that post-war golden age of capital that they're trying to uh, call call us back to, and then talk about some of the key fault lines and some of the ruptures that began to open up increasingly over the course of the subsequent decades that led us to, to neoliberalism. It seems that we just uh, we haven't learned our history, have we? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're getting at is, is the crux of the issue, which is that these plans, Warren's plans, like liberals in the United States that are concerned with climate change more broadly – are, are aiming at resolving the climate crisis without really shifting the balance of power, without really altering what we call the relations of production, which basically means capitalist production. And that's going to fundamentally always have limits because capitalism cannot, cannot support anything, right? It can support a certain range of social provision depending on uh, social and economic conditions at a certain moment. And right now, there actually is the space, given how high profits are, um, there actually is space, you know, I would say structurally, to support a broader range of social programs. But those conditions are not permanent. And given the competitive logic of capitalism, if capitalists can subvert those programs by investing elsewhere or by rolling back taxes or whatever, that's going to be a continual struggle that will always be ongoing as long as you still have capitalism, right? Corporations and Elizabeth Warren's model which is basically what's called the stakeholder capitalism model, are these like neutral forces that are, that are kind of arbitrating between different stakeholders in national prosperity. That includes communities, workers, shareholders, managers, suppliers, customers, right? These are all stakeholders for this model. And the corporation is a kind of neutral force that arbitrates between them. And guess who is in charge of carrying out this neutral referee role? Well, industrial corporate managers, they're the neutral ones that are going to be uh, mm. uh, kind of adjudicating between these competing uh, or these different groups, which are not necessarily in conflict, right? These stakeholders have to be organized and brought together to recognize that they have a common interest 
in the prosperity of these industrial corporations. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that's just not true. That's just not how corporations work. Corporations, as you said earlier, I think, are crystallizations of capitalist power. They will continue to push for the con for, to maximize the conditions for accumulation to occur. That means, that means profit maximization, basically. That means they have to fight for certain regulatory conditions and political policies. They have to fight for certain labor market structures. They have to, et cetera, all down the line, environmental practices that, are, that, are, that will maximize their ability to make profits. And in as much as stakeholders are, made, are brought into this system, this, this, this logic, other stakeholders like communities or workers, well, in as much as they have an interest in perpetuating this firm, they too will, have, will find that they have an interest in increasing profitability uh, under Warren's logic. And so, again, like it, not only is it unstable, but it possibly has a negative effect on working class solidarity in the sense that workers are, are supposedly, you know, maybe it'll work, uh, being brought into companies to compete with other groups of workers, to, brought into kind of embedded within corporate governance structures to compete with other workers, teaming up with their managers against other uh, managerial aligned uh, manager worker alliances uh, at the firm level in order to sell their product against other people. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, like I say, rolling back regulations that get in the way. It means, you know, restructuring trade barriers. It means all these things, subcontracting labor. For example, where is the worker appointed representative on a board of directors going to come down on whether to support profits in their own salaries, et cetera, by hiring uh, precarious subcontract labor, possibly, uh, possibly abroad, or to hire another uh, group of uh, unionized, well-paid workers to do the same job here, you know, without the government coming down and imposing some kind of capital controls. Where would those worker-appointed representatives come down on that question? I mean, it's far from clear. Maybe they would do the good thing, quote-unquote, but that's not certain by any stretch. And if you look at the way that this system has gone in Germany, for example, they, they have tended to side with profit, profit maximization and the health of the firm. So what we need to be able to do all over the long term is separate the interests of workers from the logic of capitalism, from the health of individual industrial corporations, and chart ourselves as a society, a future that is outside of production for profit altogether. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Lofty aims, and I don't want anybody out there who gets really jazzed up and excited about things like, you know, uh, employee ownership or co-determination or what have you. I don't, you know, the, the aim of our conversation here today is not to, 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 to get you guys, uh, you know, bummed out about some of these challenges, but to, to get you excited about the challenges. These are real challenges and, and they're things that we can overcome. We can do this. This is not a call for cynicism, but it is a call for awareness and to have nuanced and serious discussions and, uh, Thanks so much for joining us on Dead Punnett Society. Steve Marr, you've, you've done a great deal, uh, I think, to, to help us think through these things. We're going to continue this discussion on the podcast version of today's episode. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits for access to the full version of that podcast. The link to that is in the video description below. You can access that with all of the instructions there. Thanks again, Steve Marr, for joining us. Thanks. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in once again. We will see you all same time, same place next week. As always, be sure to give us a thumbs up. Be sure to subscribe to the channel below so that you will be notified every time we release really important episodes like this one. I think Dead Punnett Society sort of exists in a very special niche right now. Uh, we're filling that on YouTube. Thanks to all of our patrons and supporters and viewers like you. So tell your friends, share us on your social media networks, and we will see you next week.